couple years ago, I moved to Rattigan. I used to live in just not too far from here in Dusseldorf, just down the street. If you go off the, down the road here and turn to the left, I was right before the big bridge that goes over uh, into Dusseldorf, kind of across from Penny Mart. And I moved a few years to Rattigan, just kind of in the other direction, about the same amount of space just going the other way. And uh, I hadn't spent much time in Rattigan before I lived there, which is, you know, kind of weird because it's not that far away. But uh, there's a mosque in Rattigan. Are you aware of where the mosque is in Rattigan, those of you who may be? And there's a bridge, if you're not familiar with it, there's a bridge, and uh, I don't know if it's called the Sud Dakota Bridge, cause, but it, looks, it has that, uh, it is, that's what it's called. I find that it's interesting. Is it named after the state, you know, of South Dakota for whatever reason? Why? Anyways. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Interesting. So as you go past, when I mean, you go over the bridge, uh, it, you know, you can see the mosque. And in the mosque, there's, there's a store. There's a grocery store in the mosque. And... Uh, I haven't really given it a lot of thought over, you know, over the years, but I began, this sermon made me ask the question, would I be comfortable shopping at the store in the mosque? I've never shopped at the store in the mosque. Would I be comfortable shopping at the store in the mosque? Would there be any issue with, with the food that has been prepared there? I'm sure it's all halal, which means their kind of form of kosher. Of it. it's, it's prepared in a certain way that meets all the dietary laws that are under is in, in Islam. So would I be okay as a Christian going there and shopping at a store that everything is prepared under dietary laws of Islam? And is it an issue about the food? Or is it an issue about do I want my money to be going to promoting Islam in, in Germany or in Europe? What would you think? I know you probably haven't thought about that. I'm sure you didn't roll out of bed this morning and wonder, would you be okay shopping at the store at the, at the mosque in Rattigan? But just kind of put that little question in your head because that's going to come back to be uh, a point in the sermon later on. So we're, we're in the book of Galatians. And in the book of Galatians, as many of you know, because you've been here, the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of believers. They are believers. They're people who have believed in Jesus Christ. They've put their trust in him as their Lord and their Savior, in him who had no sin that died for them, rose again. They've put themselves back under the law of Moses. They're following the law of Moses. Now, it's important to understand they're not rejecting Christ. They're not saying they no longer believe in Christ and therefore, they're going to go back under the law of Moses. That's not what they're saying. They are saying they believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but they have been convinced. And the Apostle Paul talks about a group of people coming to convince them that they also need to follow the law of Moses. Basically, the idea that, they, that these people who <clears throat> were coming from the Pharisee party of, of Christianity said that Jesus' death on the cross allowed everybody who had not been born a Jewish person the grace and freedom to become Jewish. That's the grace and freedom that you had received from Christ. He gave you the grace and freedom to become Jewish. So if you're going to accept that grace and freedom, because otherwise you couldn't just become Jewish, you had to be kind of born into it. If you're going to accept that, then you had to go through the process of becoming Jewish. Men had to become circumcised, which is the big one, that's the issue that they talk about. 
And this is a very different way of understanding freedom in Christ, right? You know, that now you have the freedom, any of you can become Jewish. And that is not what the Apostle Paul believed the message of the gospel was. And when he heard that the people in Galatia were coming back under the law, that they were listening to this, becoming confused by it, that, well, the freedom uh, that we have in Christ is to become Jewish, he's, he's dismayed. He's, he just can't believe this is happening because he sees this as a very different thing. It's not the freedom to become Jewish. It's the freedom to follow Christ under grace, by faith, not being under any particular law of religion at all. And so he felt like these people were throwing away freedom to know their God. They're throwing away the inheritance of being part of the family of God in order to return to being a slave under the law. And so if you've been with us, Paul gives a, a, a history lesson using the example of Abraham, because Abraham is a man that was found righteous before the law was in place, he's found righteous because he simply believed in what God said, which Paul interprets as faith. He had faith that what God said was going to be true. Therefore, Abraham was counted as righteous, which means to be right with God. And he sees that they're throwing this away by going back under the law. So this is where we're going to pick up. He, he talks about Abraham and his righteousness, and then he goes on and he starts to use a metaphor or illustration about being part of a family. And so we're going to look and we're going to pick up the verses a little bit at the end of chapter 3, because this is one of those places where the chapter break uh, between chapters 3 and 4 is right in the middle of a thought. And, uh, and so you need to have these together. Remember, we've talked about in the past, you need to be careful to let the chapter breaks and verses form the way you read the Bible, because those things were put in after this was written. And sometimes those things can kind of close off a thought before it's really done. And this is a, an example. So he starts talking about what it means to be a son of God, and then he talks about being a son of God within the family of faith. So he says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized, who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, Slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as you are the heir as a child, he is no different from a slave, though he owns the whole estate. He's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also. When we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave and since you are a son, God has, also made, God has made you also an heir. So in this passage, what the Apostle Paul does, he uses this illustration of a family. And it's a rich family. It's a family that has a, an estate to inherit. And he uses this idea, which would be very common back in the day, not so much common in our time now, because we don't really have kings and rulers that, that inherit power. But back in the day... If a, if a ruler, a king, died while, he, while his children or his sons 
were still underage, while they were still minors, then they would be placed over those children, trustees, guardians, people that knew how to run the kingdom, until that child grew up to a point where he was mature enough to inherit the kingdom. That's, that's what he's talking about here. And he makes a specific point, and this is important, that this is why the verse before, that we are all in Christ in that place of equal inheritance. He says there's no Jew or Greek, there's no slave or free, there's no male or female. All these things which tend to, to break thing, people down into different levels of, of inheritance or what their, pla- what their place in society is. He says in Christ, those things don't matter. In Christ, it doesn't mean that you're no longer you know, out in the world, maybe a slave. And the Apostle Paul actually addresses that issue later on in different letters. Or you're a master, or you're a woman, or you're a man. But he's saying in Christ, you're regarded as an inheritor of the kingdom, regardless of what your social status is, regardless of what your gender is, regardless of what your ethnicity is. If you have placed your trust in Christ, you are an inheritor of the kingdom of God. And so so then he says, basically, what has happened is that the law was put into place to be that guardian and trustee over humanity until... By God's design, the time had come for Christ to be revealed, for there to be a step in human development in our maturity where we go from being under laws to keep us from you know, hurting ourselves or to kind of keep a restraint upon us to being allowed the opportunity to walk in maturity, which allows us to walk in freedom. And Christ has come and he's made that possible. So there's no longer a need to be under the law. The law has, the purpose of the law has been fulfilled. And so now we are free. And Jesus even talks about this. He talks about this. He kind of, he foreshadows this. And he even uses Abraham as an example himself. When Jesus was in the temple, he says this. He says, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And this is a funny response. I find this a very strange response, to be honest with you. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants, and we've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we shall be free? I find that mind-boggling. Because the whole story around Judaism is the fact that they were slaves in Egypt. And the whole story of the Exodus, which is kind of the, it's basically the cross for the Jews. You know, it's the defining moment of their faith. And these guys, we've never been slaves. It's like a Christian saying, Christ died for your sins. And, and someone goes, yeah, but I've never, I've never sinned. So why do, why do I need Christ to die for me? It'd be kind of, like, but it'd be a Christian saying that. You'd be like, wait a minute, you're a Christian. You should know that you've sinned and you need repentance. Yeah, you just, just, there's a disconnect here somewhere. And, and Jesus does what Jesus very often does, is he just kind of ignores sometimes what people say because he wants to say what he wants to say. So he never really addresses that. He kind of addresses it in a roundabout way. He says, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family. This is the same thing you know, the Apostle Paul saying, you have a place in the family because you're no longer a slave. You're an heir. You have a place in the family, a slave no longer has a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son a son belongs to it forever. So if the son himself sets you free, 
you will be free indeed. So this is great. But what does it mean? How do we live this? Because this is coming into this place that the Apostle Paul is trying to take the people of Galatia. He's saying, you have a freedom in Christ. And if you refuse to live that, you are intentionally limiting yourself. You are closing the door to the opportunities and freedom, what it means to live in Christ. And you're putting yourself back under a very restrictive law. And why would you want to do that? But I think one of the questions coming back to Paul would be, well, what does it mean to be free then? Because we know being free doesn't mean we just get to run out and do whatever we want. What does it mean to be free? So we're going to look at two different aspects of freedom, just briefly today. One is the area of spiritual freedom. Spiritual freedom is pretty straightforward, at least according to the scripture. Spiritual freedom means that we are now free through Jesus Christ from the accusing condemning power of sin because why because the consequences of that sin has been taken from us by jesus christ scripture says that he exchanged our sin for his righteousness he who knew no sin became sin for us you have clothed yourself in christ there's all kinds of different ways that the bible is saying jesus took the responsibility the culpability the consequences of your sin eternally spiritually and brought it upon himself this is found in Romans chapter 8. He really gets into this with them. He says, therefore, uh, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life, he's using law in kind of a, a bit of a tongue-in-cheek way here. He's not saying, when he talks about the law of love, he's not meaning it as restrictive as the law of Moses. He's just he's saying, this is a different way to think about the way to follow. The law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of a sinful man to be a sin offering. So quickly, what was it the law was incapable of doing because of the weakness of the sinful nature? It was incapable of bringing us to a place of healing of our soul. It wasn't because the law was bad. It was because we were bad. We brought into the equation our own sin. And there was nothing within the law to heal us of that brokenness. In the law, there was plenty in there to point out our brokenness. You're wrong here. You're wrong here. You're wrong here. You're wrong here. You're wrong there. You're wrong there. There's plenty of that. But there was nothing to say, and here's the solution. It just said, this is where you're wrong. And so, it was, so the law is righteous. But it's weakened in that we bring the weakness into it. It can't save us. What saves us then is God sends his own son to do that for us. In the likeness of sinful man, that doesn't mean Jesus was sinful, but he's in our likeness. He had the potential to sin. Scripture tells us he was tempted by all things. And you're not tempted by anything unless you could go down that road. So he was tempted, but never sinned. And so he becomes the perfect example of humanity. He becomes that sin offering. This is called, in theology, substitutional atonement, where Jesus substitutes himself for our sin. He dies on that cross instead of us. And so, and so he condemns sin in sinful man. Jesus takes on it, and, and, he, and he 
breaks the power of sin and death because he pays the price in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us because we are now considered having paid our debt because of Jesus in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. And so this is that place of spiritual freedom for us. This answers the ultimate questions of life that we have. It answers the question of death. What is going to be our fate when we die? Because as much as many of us refuse to really let it go through our head that one day we are going to die, unless Christ comes back, we're all going to die. And I know that seems like not, maybe all of you are going to die, but not me. There is this weird thing in our head, right, that kind of says this is going to happen to everybody else. I think that's why when it gets close to us, it feels very strange because it feels like, no, this, this is not really something that should affect me. But it is going to affect you. There's some good news. But the good news really is that any concern about what takes place after that, your eternal fate facing your God, you know that you can stand there in a place of not having to be in fear, but in a place of joy. Because you have already been declared right with God. You have already been declared righteous. And this idea, you know, the, this obsession with what happens after death is something that is, you see all throughout different human cultures, you know? Like the elaborate funerary rites you see in like an Egyptian culture, ancient Egyptian culture. You see it in uh, cultures around the world today, you know, preparations for when someone dies. The Vikings, you know, they used to stick the dude in the boat and they put all these uh, jewelry around him so that he could sail on into the afterlife and he had his weapons so he could fight if he had to. You know, this has been something that's been on the minds of humanity ever since we've been human. And it's worried people. It's been a place of deep fear. David, when you read the Psalms, he doesn't really have a, he's not okay with the idea of dying. You read the Psalms, David has a little bit of fear. Actually, he has a lot of fear. He often will write, Lord, I do not want to descend into the grave. Do not make me go into Sheol, which is what they understood the afterlife being. He didn't have the assurance that you have if you're in Christ. But you don't have to worry about that anymore. And the other thing you don't have to worry about anymore because of your spiritual freedom in Christ is the fear that somehow I'm going to trip up and fall into a place of God's wrath and he's going to hate me forever and I lose what it means to be in the family of God. You don't have to worry about that because by grace you're saved through faith. You're not going to trip up. And if you do trip up, it doesn't mean necessarily that you've lost everything. We always have that place of repentance. That's kind of the whole prodigal son story, part of it. It also tells us, too, that your life has direction. What is your life to be about? Because that's one of the big questions people have in life. What is my life supposed to be about? Is your life supposed to be about going to an office? Is your life really just about your career? Is there more to life than that? For some people... They don't have any idea what's more than that. So they're just going to, I'm going to do everything I can to earn the money. And I'm going to do everything I can to earn prestige because there's nothing more than that. I listened to a quote by uh, it was Jim Carrey. He's this comedian. I'm sure many of you are very familiar with Jim Carrey. He's a very uh, successful actor, comedian. And in this quote, he said, I wish everybody could be financially successful and experience fame. Because then they'd realize how empty it is. 
And they would stop chasing it, wasting their time chasing the stuff that is empty. That was kind of insightful on his part. You know what your life is about. You have the privilege of knowing that your life is about pursuing God, knowing him more deeply. You can do that within the context of your career. You can do that within the context of your family, your community, for sure, because you live within this world, right? But that's not what your life, your life isn't about your career. Your life isn't about a title. Your life isn't about prestige. Your life is about knowing Christ. And so with the spiritual freedom you have, you can pursue him physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. You can come to know him more deeply. And you can come to be known more deeply as you live for Christ and die to self. That's spiritual freedom. The other, the other freedom we have is much more nuanced. And this is the one that kind of goes back to the question I asked you in the beginning of the sermon. Then we have freedom to make certain choices of how we live our life. And this is so much more nuanced because we are all on different journeys with Jesus. You know, we have the, we have the same Holy Spirit for those of us who are in Christ. And the Holy Spirit of Christ is the same for Boris as it is for me. You know, it's the same for Krishna back there as it is for me. It's the same for all of you as it is for me. But what's different is our part, who we are, is very different. You know, I'm an American male white, comes from an upper middle class, probably you could say family. And yet, even though there are other people who could say that same description, on top of that, though I lived my childhood in Ghana, which is a little bit different from folks. And then I also lived in the northwest part of the United States, which is different from folks. And now I've lived 12 years in Germany, which is different from folks. And you take that person and you compare it to, you know, uh, uh, say, Grace, you know, a woman, you know, of a Filipino background, but your family is, like we just talked about, it's in Houston, it's in the Philippines. You know, she's lived a worldview which is very different from mine, very different. Not because of values and not because she's better or I'm better or any worse or anything like that. It's just radically different. And yet we interface with the same Holy Spirit. So, I think this is reasons why sometimes there's differences between Christians about conclusions to stuff. Because have you ever wondered, we have the same Holy Spirit. Why don't we all agree on everything? Well, because like it says, what the law was powerless to do because of the weakness, we still, even though I'm righteous in Christ, I see the world through my eyes. And we all have this kind of tendency to think everybody sees the world the way we do. It's again, it's like that, it's like that tendency where we don't think we're going to die. Everyone else is, but we don't think we are. We also tend to think the way I see the world is right in the middle of normal. And the way everyone else sees the world is a deviation from normal. Right? And so we get into this place and we don't understand why people are coming to different conclusions because our conclusion is quite obviously the right one. Because I am normal. I am the center of normality. And if you don't agree with me, Manka, then there's something wrong with you. And your relationship with God. 
Because also my relation with God is also the very definition of normal. And that's just all nonsense. <laughs> you know, I've been, I, I'm given the righteousness of Christ, but I'm not 100% righteous. I'm counted free from sin, but I still sin. You know, the scripture says we've been clothed with Christ. And there's this idea that we're still developing. You know, there's a process called sanctification, developing toward, towards holiness. And there's going to always be this wild card called you and me, us, humanity, that gets in the, the way. And sometimes those disagreements have to do with just different ways of how we view the world. And we need to be able to love each other through those. And this is one thing about IBCD, which I think is, it allows us to exercise this more than probably any other context that you can ever be in in your life. Can you exercise the context of different people from different backgrounds following the same spirit, but living and coming to different conclusions about things? A lot of churches can't. They'll fight over that. If you do not agree with me on every little thing, then there's something wrong with you because I'm the center of normalcy. And of righteousness. And these differences are often seen on how we exercise our freedom and the choices we make of how we're going to live our lives. And in the early church, one of the big issues they had was the issue of eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols in temples. Is it okay to eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol as a Christian? This was a question that was a big deal because the question that the early church had to deal with is how do you live a holy life in a world that is thoroughly pagan, in a world that has had very little impact of Christianity? When the early church starts out, there is no impact of Christianity yet really in the way that people lived their everyday life. How do you do that? And so the Apostle Paul actually answers this question. Because this is a big question. He talks about it in the book of Romans. He talks about it in the book of 1 Corinthians. And there's a principle from it that we can draw. And we're going to look at both Corinthians and Romans a little bit. He says, So then about eating, meat food, eating food sacrificed to idols. Now listen carefully to what he says. Because this is a nuanced argument that he gives. It's, but nuanced means, you know, it's not just clear black and white. It's, you have to think a little bit. It says, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and then he kind of, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, there's lots of things that can influence your life. And then in Romans he says, and maybe there's a, even a demonic influence, but there's no God. You might have a demon involved. You might just have an empty altar there involved, but it's certainly whatever it is, it's no God. There's only one God. It says, yet for us there's but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and for whom we live. And there's but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come and through whom we live. But not everybody knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God, for we are no worse if we do not eat and no better than if we do. So the idea here is that this God, you know, meat, is sacrificed to an idol, it's still just meat. It doesn't become magic meat. It doesn't become meat infused with the spirit of Baal. It's just meat. 
and you can just eat it for what it is. It's not magic. It doesn't bring spiritual, you know, power into your life or does it remove spiritual power from your life? It's just meat. But some people don't know this. Some people are so accustomed with the way that they've been raised. They've been told that this sacrifice to Jupiter or this sacrifice to Hermes or whatever, this is to a living God. They get so used to it. They think, well, then if I eat of that meat, then I'm partaking in the worship. I'm, I'm, I'm partaking of the benefit of worship of this other God. And if I take this meat, then, then this somehow is a compromise of my faith. And Paul says, this is what he calls weak conscience. It's not, a, it's not as big a value statement as you might think, because you know what? We all have areas that we have a certain weakness in conscience. Because we've been told over and over and over again, do not participate in this. Do not do this. Certain types of music, for example. Some people are okay with listening to secular music. Some people say the only music I want to listen to is Christian music or music that focuses on Christ. Is there anything in the scripture that says you can't listen to music that doesn't necessarily focus its, its, its content directly on Jesus? What's the freedom aspect in that? I listen to secular music. When I play in the pub, most of the stuff I play is secular. I slip in the Be Like Jesus stuff. But I play a lot of Cat Stevens and stuff like that. Who's a Muslim, by the way? What do you do with that? Now, I don't play Marilyn Manson. You know? I don't play occultic stuff. Don't play Black Sabbath. You know? So there's a line in there somewhere for me. Where'd that come from? Is it okay? Are some of you right now going, the pastor just said, one, he plays in a pub, and two, he plays music by Cat Stevens, who's now a Muslim. Some of you are flipping out right now, maybe. You're experiencing exactly what he's talking about here, those places of conscience. Alcohol, for some people, is a place of conscience. We talk about that quite often here. I grew up being told it's just not something you do at all, period, end of story. And because of that, some people who grew up like I grew up, even then they realize they have freedom in Christ. You know, drunkenness is the issue. Not, not just wine in and of itself, but drunkenness is the issue. They just like can't do that with freedom of conscience. In that place, they're weak. I'm weak in certain areas. What's the place I'm weak in? I just shared with you a little bit. I don't know if I can go and in good conscience shop at a, at a grocery store in a mosque. Why not? Food is food. I'm sure the quality is fine. Just because it's been halal, halal doesn't mean anything to me. And there's nothing added to halal. Actually, halal just means when the meat is uh, butchered, it's like kosher kill. They don't, the, the animal is still alive when they slit its throat. That's one of the main differences. There's also not mixes of certain things. It doesn't affect me at all. But I would feel weird. I would feel strange. I don't know why. I can't put my finger on it. And so for me, this is an area of conscience that maybe it's weak in a sense. That I don't need to feel restricted here, but I do. And so I don't shop there. It's not against Muslims. It's nothing against them. Nothing against the food. I love Middle Eastern food. I just would feel off. And I really don't know why. And so Romans, Paul gives 
this, he gives this other insight. And he says, if a, if a man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Basically, he's saying, if you are violating your own conscience within your freedom, then you're sinning because you're sinning against yourself. I have the freedom to shop anywhere and to eat anything. But if my conscience, for whatever reason, doesn't feel comfortable in that, then I'm sinning against my own conscience and I'm not eating from faith and therefore I have sinned against myself, which is just the same thing as sinning against one of you. It's wounding another soul by my actions. I can wound myself. I can wound you. It's still a sin. And this is why I love the preceding verse to this. And I think it's one that everyone should put in their little bank and try and live. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. I think when it comes to our freedom, to the choices, to the way that we live, this first one is great. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. You don't need to tell everybody everything on your mind all the time. And you don't need to tell everything that's on your mind regarding things of faith all the time. Because you might not all agree on it. And then what you end up doing is you just cause an unnecessary conflict within the body of Christ. Because what our tendency is, because we think we're the center of normal, we think that if I feel bad about it, you should feel bad about it. And if you don't feel bad about it, there's something wrong with you. I don't have... And I'm making much more of this than it really is. But say, I don't have the freedom to feel okay going to the mosque and going to the grocery store. And if I see you doing it, then you're wrong too. That's what we tend to do. And so the Apostle Paul starts out saying, you know what? These kind of things that really aren't issues of salvation, whatever you believe about these things, just keep between yourself and God. Let you and God work it out. If you want to talk about it with a friend that you know that's not going to end up to some, be a big deal, then do so. But we have a hard time with this, don't we? We have a hard time keeping things between ourselves and God, especially when it comes to our faith. We think everybody should be on board with us, and if they're not, there's something wrong with them because it's better to, for us to think there's something wrong with them than maybe there's something wrong with me. We don't want to think that. And then the second part of this is interesting, though, because then he adds this other nuance to it. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. There's a lot of things out there that we could say, well, by the grace of God, I'm okay. This is okay. I'm no longer under the law. And he's basically saying here, don't be stupid with your freedom. You can't sit there and say, well, hey, the sin of adultery, I don't have a problem with it. So I guess that means I can indulge in it because I'm okay with it. That is not what he's saying. You know, this is what it means. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. Don't be stupid with this. Because this is one reason why the Ten Commandments are still largely in place. We don't really have to focus on you know, what day we worship on. But we still should not murder, should not steal, should not lie. Because this wounds other people. And what's interesting is you look throughout human history, those basic principles you see in cultures, regardless of whether they were Jewish cultures or not. There's this thing called the, the Law of Hammurabi, which was written around the time, they think around the same time as the Law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, and it holds a lot of the same things. Because cultures around the world have said, you know what? 
within our group anyway, we probably shouldn't kill each other, probably shouldn't steal from each other, probably shouldn't lie to each other. You know, it doesn't take a spiritual rocket scientist to figure this out. And these kind of laws have been in place, and, and, and we read in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God works with other peoples. It's just that the Bible is the story of Judaism, because from the Jews comes the Messiah. That's why we have this particular people group that we know their whole history, because from the Jews comes the Messiah. Through the context of the Jews, we understand that what law looks like, what freedom looks like, what grace looks like, what sacrifice looks like. We understand this because we have this Bible. And one reason why we need to be in the Bible is because we have the same Holy Spirit, but we have different people. And sometimes that, that unrighteousness in me wants to go off in a direction and make a moral choice that might be wrong. And we need to have the Bible as something that's other than us to bring us back. So I can say, hey, I don't feel, I feel okay about stealing from folks. So I guess it's okay for me to do that. And then we go, well, the Bible says. And the Bible has no real personal interest in what your moral choice is going to be. It's written in black and white. It's other than you. You can say, well, I feel free in Jesus to do this. And the Bible says, no, you're not. You may be thinking that you have this freedom, but no, you don't. I run into this all the time with relationships. People say, well, I feel that the Lord has blessed me to go chase after another person. And they, can, and they feel that. I just feel that the Lord has said it's okay. I feel my soul is, is, is praising the Lord as I'm leaving this and chasing another relationship. And I can say, at this point, you are so far off what the Bible says that you need to reorient yourself to the word of God instead of to what you feel. Because your heart, even though it's, you're saved, you're going to be, you're counted as righteous, you're going to be made righteous, but until the day you are 100% sanctified, your heart is deceitful. And that's not going to change. It can get better, but your heart is deceitful. So you need to exercise the freedom that we have in Christ with maturity, with your eyes open. And if we do this, then we will find ourselves walking in a place where we, our, our decisions aren't just based upon ourselves, but they're also based on how we affect people around us. So, he's, so back to the, the meat-eating one. He says, be careful there, there, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block for the weak. You have freedom. But if you exercise it, be careful that it doesn't cause someone else to stumble. For if anyone with a weak conscience, again, talking about this issue of eating the meat. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you, sees you who have this knowledge about freedom, eating in an idol's temple, won't he, the weak one, be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to the idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. And the difference is, you know, I'm just eating meat. The idol's empty, it's nothing. But the brother doesn't know that. So when he eats, he feels like, I'm going back, I guess it's okay to participate and worship other gods. And he is destroyed. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, and again, we all have points of weakness in our conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that it does not cause him 
to fall. Now, this isn't saying you have to be a vegetarian. He's saying in the context, if I know that this is going to cause my brother to sin, I'm not going to eat the meat that's sacrificed to an idol. I'll go get meat somewhere else. And at first glance, this is pretty straightforward. But again, you have all these different issues that go in. At what point do you try and uh, do you just become overwhelmed by people pleasing? Because you know at some point, almost everything you do is going to offend somebody somewhere. You know, I like to, I, I'm a meat eater as well as, you know, everything else. Well, someone who's a tender conscience, you shouldn't, you know, eat the, the cute furry animals. They're ta- do I stop eating meat for that sake? Well, I guess I could try. And then you have the people that, you know, well, you don't want to wound the, wound the vegetables either, do you? You know, they have a life. You know, there's studies that say that the plants can respond to emotions around us. Well, you don't want to eat them, do you? Well, what am I going to do? You don't want to walk on the grass to offend the grass. I guess I'm going to just kind of levitate and starve. Yeah, at some point, you have to use your brain. And you have to use your brain to say, there's certain levels of what you can do. But if it's an obvious one, and you have someone that's right in front of you that's going to be hurt by this, and it's not that big a deal for you to say, fine, I won't do it. Then don't do it. Because it's the law of love. And the law of love never goes away for a Christian. It's the law of love. Common sense, law of love. That's the freedom that we have. It's not defined by being free from all authority. It is defined by being free to go deeper in your relationship with God. You can go deeper unhindered by fear. You can go deeper being unhindered by wondering, am I going to be righteous enough? When you find trust in Christ, you can be free from fear. And being free from fear is a wonderful thing. When you want God, when God is the only thing that you really want in your life, man, you free up because that frees you from want. And want is a brutal thing, man. When you're free from want, then you're going to be free from envy. You're going to be free from trying to catch up with others. You're going to be free from comparing your life to others. You're going to be free from those places of want that extend into every area of our life. Because if God's what we want, we have him. You're free. Contentment in the Lord is a very powerful life hack. And Christ has provided all this for us. We have this freedom, spiritual freedom. We have a context to make choices within everyday life. It's a freedom we have to remove any barrier from knowing Christ better. And that's what your life is about. Knowing Christ better. Drawing closer to your God. Because the life you spend here, the time you spend here, is going to be just a drop. A tiny, tiny, tiny little blip compared to the rest of eternity. And yet, it is going to be the time spent here which will determine the trajectory of that eternity for you. So live with your eyes on Christ. Know him deeply. Live in the place of freedom. Exercise love. And common sense when necessary. Understand that no one is like you. For better or for worse, no one is like you. And have grace for those who are around you as you walk the journey of faith. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for you know, the fact that we just don't live sort of a, an, an outside of us philosophy of just having to think the right things and hold to right principles, but we have more than that. We have a living relationship. 
And Father, we pray that you would help us to understand how we can live this living relationship out better and better within our families, among our friends, with our work colleagues and the communities we are in, but most importantly with you. Help us to set aside the barriers that we sometimes put up between ourselves and you, barriers that you don't demand, but we seem to demand for whatever reason. And God, we pray that you will help us to live in freedom, but within that freedom, have grace, have hope. Within that freedom, have love. And I thank you for our church here. I thank you for IBCD. It's a place that has allowed me and I think allows many of us to exercise certain aspects of our faith, which are deep, things like this, that we can appreciate that we are deeply different from one another in our life experiences. And yet, we are brothers and sisters because of our single Lord, Jesus Christ. And God, as we learn kind of from season to season, what that really means. We all go through kind of a process of learning what that means. Pray you continue to guide us in your grace. Help us grow closer to you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.